Welcome to Freestyle Thoughts, a dance podcast. I'm your host, Anna, and this is episode four. Today, we are finishing up our overview of traditional dance by talking about the big three, Mongolian, Tibetan, and Dai dances. I want to say that these are the three most common minority ethnic dances in Chinese dance, and that is not because of population. According to Wikipedia, these are the ninth, eighth, and 18th largest minorities, respectively. Not sure how recent those number rankings are, so I mean, they're in the top 20 largest of the 55 recognized ethnic minority groups, but I mean, so I'm like, they're still going decent. <laughs> uh, they're not like top three or top five, though, so it's interesting, isn't it? If you couldn't tell from last episode, this episode and last episode were meant to be one episode. And then that episode was meant to be one episode with episode two. But it turns out I have lots of lots of things to say about all of this. So who knew? <laughs> Let's get into it. Let's start off with Mongolian dances. In regards to the map of Asia, I would say um, outside the major countries, Mongolia is like, like the easiest country to, to spot. <laughs> I would say that... You know, I mean, the, uh, the very abridged version of the history between China and Mongolia is, like, pretty well known. I mean, like, if you're familiar with Mulan, I mean, there's there's part of it. <laughs> like, the Chinese, Chinese were fighting off the, the Mongolians. And subsequently, China has ruled over them. Very simplified history um, between, the two country, between those two countries. But, I mean more than common knowledge in America, I would say at least. But, you know, Mongolia, Mongolia itself is an independent country. But within China, Mongolians make up like 17% of the population. So, you know, decent amount, decent number, like, of people. So Mongolians in general kind of like have historically, uh, were historically nomadic, nomadic and they lived on the grasslands. So, you know, horses and horseback riding has always played a major part in Mongolian culture. I bring this up because a lot of Mongolian dances tend to like reference or depict horse riding and or have the sort of naming convention with like grassland, I don't know, something like that. So let's talk about music and instruments. So that's something that I mean, I'm really, I was really excited to research this. <laughs> so firstly, Mongolian throat singing. It's noted for including overtone singing, right? And, you know, basically, if you don't know what that is, a, a performer hums a fundamental pitch and then manipulates the overtones that belong to that fundamental pitch. So the overtone creates the melody. If you, if you just, like, know, like, like sound waves with, and had to study that, like, in high school or whatever, you I mean, like, this is just, like, a real-life example of that. <laughs> but, yeah, I think, like, that's, I mean, Mongolian, singing, Mongolian throat singing is very common in the uh, music in Chinese dance, Mongolian dances. But also, another thing that I want to emphasize that I was super excited to find out about is, you know, I mean, okay, Mongolian culture can claim a lot of instruments, but the one thing that I wanted to emphasize is like the, okay, don't know, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's it's, it's like the horse head fiddle, but the, I think the name is, it's like Morinkur. I don't know, it's M-O-R-I-N-K-H-U-U-R. I don't know how to pronounce that, but I'm going to just call it the, the horse head fiddle. 
It's a classical Mongolian two-string instrument played with a bow. I'm honestly not super sure about like what goes into playing a horse head fiddle, but the pictures that I've seen of people playing, the posture is very similar to uh, arhu, which is a classical Chinese two-stringed instrument that's like like it's found all over classical Chinese music and in dance music also, whatever. But as you can guess, the horse head fiddle and throat singing, you know, they are both very commonly found in the music for Mongolian dances. So that, and I can't, I can't ex again, I cannot explain to you how excited I was to be able to like research that. Like, I don't know. Cause like, again, like the, the last episode and episode before that, we kind of danced around how each um, style has its own like instrumentation and music, but there weren't a lot of, there weren't a lot of like, resources online that could definitively point to one thing or another like the bells I kind of just had to add, extrapolate same thing with the singing last episode but this is like the first time I can be like this that is 100 that sound is 100% belongs to like um Mongolian culture therefore Mongolian dance I don't know so exciting maybe I'm just a little bit maybe I'm a nerd because of that I, I'm a nerd not because of that I'm, I'm a nerd for other reasons but th that definitely helps and let's move on and talk about costuming. <laughs> uh, Mongolian dances, there are like two main styles of costumes, I want to say. First, I would say that, you know, it's it's a dress and sometimes it's fur lines, sometimes it's not. Sometimes they're like designs on the, on the skirt, like these like, these like swirls. I, want, I'll I don't know how to describe them, so I'm just going to point them out in one of the videos later. But I don't know, to me at least, these swirls give like strong Mongolian energy. And it was a pretty easy way to identify. Other times, it's these like puffy pants. They like, cuff at the bottom, and, like, like where like the at the ankle. Headpieces also tend to vary, but it's either some sort of like hat or like head headband. I want to say sometimes it's like super out there, like a huge ass flower. But the number one thing that's common across the board, though, the shoes or you know like the boots. Sometimes I think they're meant to like represent the riding boots. You know, Mongolians big on horses and horse riding. So it would make sense that that aspect is reflected in the costumes, but it's what this actually ends up looking like. It's a cheaper option, which is like it's like basically like a leg warmer. So it completely covers your ballet shoe, like you, it's your own ballet shoe, but they're like sewn at the bottom, like in the middle of like where like the middle of your foot would go, so that the shoe is fully covered. So like there's no without breaking it, there's no like amount that you can like pull up on like this like covering without breaking it to reveal like the sh your ballet shoe. But <laughs> again, this is the cheaper option. <laughs> it makes it so unnecessarily slippery and it's awful. <laughs> but then there's the preferred way, which I'm guessing is more, exp it's more expensive. So it's basically the same thing as a leg warmer, but you know, there's like a, as you're not using your own ballet shoe, there's a ballet shoe that comes with like within the boot. It's more of a boot, okay? It's more of a boot than it's a covering. And then there are, you know, obviously variations for, like, you know, adults that have, like, a heel. But point still still remains. <laughs> Let's talk about specifics because I feel like I'm digging myself into, into a hole with, like, the, with, with the, with the shoe stuff. <laughs> okay, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be straight. I am not super familiar with the most basic, basic Mongolian dance. So I actually kind of struggled to find one. But, but I did. <laughs> It's called Yuanfang de Sunian, which 
translates to like thoughts from afar, something like that. <laughs> so from the get-go, you know, in the music, that's the throat singing, and it's actually pretty featured heavily throughout the beginning of the music in this dance. But, you know, let's talk about the movements. First, there's like, you know, lots of like kind of shoulder movements. I don't know how to just describe the, the walk, but it happens at one minute, 36 seconds. Basically, dancers kind of like, like they lean back and they're kind of like leading with their shoulders. And like with each step, they kind of like drop like one shoulder forward and then make a wave with like their arm as they step forward and like switching elbows up and down with each step and shoulder drop. I don't know. It's poor description, I know, but it's, you need to see, you just need to see it. And it's just so classically Mongolian dance. Also, if you take a look at this dance, the, the, the hands, fingers are together and straight. Honestly, in some ethnic dances, you can sort of get away with using uh, a show. But like Mongolian and Dai dances, which we'll talk about later, are much more strict about not using a show. So let's talk about some of this imagery. Like, yeah, sometimes Mongolian dances depict like horses and equestrian related things. But another common image is actually, it's, it's, it's a bird. Second video I've linked doesn't really have a name, but it's depicting a bird. I've seen it labeled in like uh, the studio I've done. I was at as like Mongolian bird. So not very, it's not creative, but it's pretty accurate. I'm not, I'm not sure which bird just, this is, but I'm, I, I just, I, I'm guessing it, it's some bird that would fly over the grasslands. Like, and I, I, don't even, I don't even know the kind of types of birds that would fly over a grassland, to be quite honest, off the top of my head. But just for reference, like the kind of the swirly design I was talking about earlier, that's, it's featured on this dancer's skirt. <laughs> but my point with this one is that there's this flapping motion at like one minute, 25 seconds. And this flapping actually was actually lightly featured in the previous video. I just, I just wanted to include this one because it does have the bird imagery so heavily, but you know, also the main instrument in the music, I believe is that horse face fiddle. Uh, also, again, like one of my friends in high school did this dance and you know, she just had the perfect body proportions for this dance. She just had these like, beautiful long limbs that made the bird imagery like really work with the way that she moved like naturally. I mean, like, like yeah, yeah. When you like when you move and da and dance, you can like, you can if you extend properly and with the proper amount of energy, you can give like the energy of long limbs. And when you have short stubby ones like mine, but you know sometimes you just have like naturally long limbs and like it it every everything was like on her side for that dance. Let's just say. Moving on, another extremely iconic like type of dance in Mongolian dances are these bowl dances. I would say they're not super common in recreational dances, recreational studios. But, you know, as you can imagine, it's like, you know, it's almost like four or five small bowls that the dancers use. Dancers hold the bowls like in their hand and more impressively, like, you know, they stack them on top of their heads. And, and like, that's why it's not super like common in recreational studios. As you can imagine, these dances take lots of skills just like do the movements properly without dropping the bowls. And like, honestly, like the bowls like are, if you're not watching the video, these bowls are more kind of the size of like, like cups, less so than like a big soup bowl. And it's not like the movements of like bowl dances are like extremely vigorous while the, bo while the bowls are on their head. But like, you know, 
it's still difficult. <laughs> the one that I've linked is called Xinjong de Jufu. It's not the most traditional bowl dance, I believe, but I mean, you still get the broad strokes of it, right? This is more of a fun fact, but at one minute, nine seconds, the dancers are actually using a common Chinese dance technique that's also found in classical dance. Basically, when you do this movement without the bowls, your hand's supposed to be making like a circle above your head, like counterclockwise. And then when your hand has like made its full circle above your head, uh, the, but the, the palm is like so much to be up, but you're meant to bring your hand down, like below your elbow, palm up, and then untwist your hands and then do it again. So this is like, when you do this in like classical dance and tra like training, you're supposed to keep your palm up and completely level. So if you were holding a bowl or a cup of water, no, no spillage. And that's, actually, and that's actually the technique that they're demonstrating <laughs> at one minute, nine seconds. It's just fun fact. <laughs> I mean, there's more of like a Mongolian twist on the movement, but it's the, the underlying technique is the same. I would say lots of the dance movements are either focused on either like the bowls or how the bowls are balanced, despite like, you know, movements and turns and stuff. Three minutes, 43 seconds has one of those like super iconic like shoulder arm Mongolian movements. <laughs> Sorry, I don't really have a lot to say about Mongolian bowl dances. I've never done one. I've, n I've only seen one done like once and I was like a really young child. It was done by the adult class, so it clearly wasn't like high school kids. I've never seen high school kids do a Mongolian bowl dance because, you know, they're hard. They're hard. Last main broad type of Mongolian dance, chopstick dances. <laughs> Mongolian chopstick dances were popular in Inner Mongolia, or they were popular in Inner Mongolia traditionally. Apparently, it was originally a single men's dance for like a marriage or festival ceremonies. But, you know, it's since expanded, obviously. Uh, basically, the chopsticks are actually in bunches tied together with a small rope at the bottom. Like, that would be like, kind of like the part that you're like, you would pick things up with if you're like using chopsticks to eat. And then usually, you know, they have like small like flags attached to the bottom of the chopsticks. And that's just like, and a lot of like dances consists of, okay, a lot of like the dances, the traditional dances, like uh, when there was just like men doing these chopstick dances, it's like there was a lot of like um, hitting their shoulder, waist, or the cho chopsticks together. And that has carried over into like the modern Mongolian chopstick dance. <laughs> So the dance that I've linked is called Taoyuan Guniang, or something along the lines of Girls of the Grassland. This was actually my first Mongolian dance. I know the video is poor quality, but the chopsticks, in case you can't really spot them, they have a red flag attached to the bottom of them. There are different ways to like hit chopsticks together and like, like the, the shoulder, waist, whatever. This dance doesn't really show it, but I've linked another one called Grassland Melody, which features more like of those shouldery movements, if you will. <laughs> I would say sometimes that looks more like the other Mongolian distance that we've seen, if that makes sense. But from what I can tell, Grassland Melody, it's, it's a ritual choreography, but it's at the same time, it also has more traditional chopstick dance movements, uh, at least from what I can tell. Music, on the other hand, I think from what I've seen and what I can tell, other chopstick dances are have like more tend to have like more intense intense music, kind of similar to like girls like grassland girls girls of the grassland have. I don't know, but back to that dance. 
obviously this is like the music's more intense than grassland melody so they're kind of less like delicate shoulder movements but it's there in the slow middle portion of the dance particularly actually the soloist does those like bird-like movements at like three minutes 15 seconds and you know since the costume is wearing pants choreography is allowed to have jumps not a lot of them it's just soloist but it's it's something one thing I want to comment on before we move on to our penultimate style, that line at the end of Girls of the Grassland, iconic. I was only in like, what, fourth or fourth grade, maybe fourth grade when I was learning Girls of the Grassland and I was doing it. And I remember, I don't know why, but everyone just called this like the can-can line. We're not kicking, but we're still in the straight, long straight line doing something with our legs that I don't know <laughs> yeah so I I don't know why but that 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 line super iconic but um actually this was the dance that I was doing when the the school split like this is the last dance that I did at like the original dance school if I've and then that dance school split into two different dance schools and then at one of the dance schools that was more dance heavy uh, we just like redid the dances for, uh, from the prior year when the school was like whole, and so we did this year. So we did this dance like twice, like for two years, <laughs> instead of the standard one year. Fun facts. <laughs> okay, let's move on to Tibetan dances. Honestly, all three of these styles are very distinct, but out of these three, I would say that Tibetan dances are more similar to Mongolian dances. Um, I do want to apologize. I didn't actually link some sort of article for Tibetan dances. And that's mostly because a lot of the resources online that I could find about Tibetan dances were either just like really vague or they didn't really aff like affirm what I already knew or shed new light onto this topic. It was, it was weird. I just wanted to take time to point out that a lot of like the dance styles that I talked about across these episodes, I, I, again, I've already... I already knew about them a lot. So the articles I've linked to more to kind of reaffirm what I already knew since I've learned everything through like passive intake. So like if I had to like write a little description for like a couple of events at my university, like I was able to pull from this knowledge and didn't have to prove it. But you know, now that I'm like recording a podcast, I felt more like I had to like prove it. Hence articles, okay, whatever. <laughs> Besides the point. <laughs> but the articles I could find like on spend dance are or just kind of Tibetan, whatever, in general, they were just, like, too vague, or they didn't provide, like, any helpful information, or they are about, like, a very specific dance that, like, the, the Tibetan people would perform, like, at festivals or, like, religious events or for religious purposes, and also the articles I found were a lot about, like, kind of religion, and, okay, like, that's fascinating, it's very fascinating, but it was not helpful for the purposes of this episode, so long story short, we're stuck with my experience-based knowledge. <laughs> so the Tibetan people have always been, you know, they've traditionally been on the Tibetan plateau. So as a result, a lot of dances have something to do with like Tian or sky, whatever, since they're, you know, close to the sky in elevation. In general, Tibetan dances, again, they're pretty rhythmic. Dare I say it, soulful. <laughs> Lots of movements are either like, they, they either feature tilting, like 
your chest to the sky and like leaning back a little bit. Like usually these are kind of like in walks. They're also like kind of like what is called, what I refer to as like, like knee bounces in of various ways. And I know that sounds stupid. It sounds stupid, but if you watch a Tibetan dance, then the bounces are there. <laughs> there are the three characteristics across Tibetan dances. I would say that for Tibetan dances, out of these three, it's more important to hear like rhythm and melody more so than the other styles. Of course, like all dances are tightly intertwined with song, but it's almost different in a way with Tibetan dance. It's sort of hard to explain. Like, uh, so we you learn you know dance with counts. You know, um, with Mongolian dances, for example, it's a lot easier to get away with actively counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight in your head and like count like even if you're you're not showing that you're counting like on your face. Um, but with with Tibetan dances, it's so much more important that you that when you're executing it, that you're not thinking about the counts and that you're just kind of moving in a way that like the music indicates, even if you are, you know, there are counts, right? But I don't know. That's the best I can explain it. I feel like that fellow dancers, I feel like should know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, similar to other styles on this on this list, I would say that Tibetan dances are broken it down into like three-ish styles, three-ish types. But you know, they're all st they're all still very they're all, all three are still very similar. First, I would say the more classically Tibetan dance is like the sleeves. There are kind of two types of like sleeve dances in Chinese dance, like the classical sleeve dances and Tibetan dances. Tibetan dances can be identified, you know, by music, but also like by movements. Firstly, like classical dances in regards to the sleeves, they tend to like, you know, do a lot of this like catching and throwing sleeves a lot more. Chinese dance, more than other styles we haven't noticed yet, have like a handful like movement of like movements, not necessarily like combos, but they these movements that are repeated at various times and recontextualized throughout the dance. Think of it as a dance version of a musical motif. In classical sleeve dances, often the sleeve catch and throw is one of those like motifs, if you will. Tibetan dances don't have that as a motif. Like they'll have it as a movement, but it's not like something that's kind of like re repeated and called back to throughout the dance. Obviously, another difference is, like, is costuming. Tibetan dances classically have this like long headpiece that goes down the back and it's adorned with like beads and jewels and like fake hair. Sometimes there's like fake fur or like pom-poms uh, or some sort of like larger uh, adornment on the top of the part of the headpiece that goes like closest to your forehead. And then, and then the costumes also have like a long skirt that usually comes down to like the ankles. Usually around like the border of the skirt and neckline, there's this like colorful like square pattern on the borders. Like I don't, I, I don't know. I don't think any of the dances I've linked today feature that pattern, but I mean, it's definitely around in the costuming. I would say that Tibetan dances in terms of like, colors overall, I've seen a lot of Tibetan dances that like the costumes dabble in like the like blacks and reds. I mean, there are also more, you know, more vibrant colors, but I don't know, like, that black and red 
combination. It's just I guess it's just not super common in like other like classical dance. It's not a super common color combination. Like I think of all the dances that I've linked so far, the only other dance that I've that that uh, has like that black and red color combination is it's like the why of the flowers so red that Uyghur dance from last episode. I don't know. I actually wasn't really paying close attention to the costume, what the co uh, costuming colors, but yeah, like I don't know. But you know, also lastly, last thing on the costuming though, uh, Tibetan dances also have like the similar situation with like the boots as like Mongolian dances. So fun for everyone, fun for everyone if we're doing Mongolian or Tibetan dances, especially if you get like the cheapy, cheapy cover ones. <laughs> okay, so let's talk specifics. The first dance I've linked is called Tian Lu. From it's it's uh, English is like heavenly heavenly road. From what I understand, this is actually a Chinese folk song that describes Tibet. So as you can imagine, there are lots of interpretations of Tian Lu. The video that uses this video uses kind of like three pieces, three sections like. There's like the piano intro music, then there's the singing part, which is the Tianlu folk song, then there's this more like instrumental percussive section towards the end. Not all Tianlu dances, like they, they don't all use the same mix, if you will, but you know, this dance specifically. When the folk song Tianlu proper starts, we see that rare sleep, uh, sleep throw, <laughs> but you notice that she, you will notice that she does, the dancer does in fact not catch it. So there's no there's no more sleeve throwing. That's the only one. The pose the dancer makes at like 57 seconds ish, where her whole body is like facing the back and her hands, her left hand's a little little bent and the right arm is elevated from the rest of her body and she's kind of like leaning over her shoulder. Very common pose, bent and dance, I would say, or at least like the feeling that like that is the pose that. Your like that pose and like the energy of that pose is meant to be like, emulated throughout the entire dance. I would say. Then at about one minute and nine seconds, we actually see the dancer walk walking with like her chest like chest like lifted to the sky, and her arms are down uh, and away from her body, which is also that's also super, like traditional Tibetan dance like style walk. And then right after that, the dancer turns around, and, and that's not the part I want to focus on. I want to emphasize the arm movements that she uses. She like circles her left arm around her head like clockwise to bring her sleeve around to the front. And in general, that movement, like the forwards and backwards version of it, so like bringing your sleeve like in front, like from in front of your body to behind your body using that circular movement, it's very common in, in Tibetan dances with even without sleeves. So fun facts. More characteristic of Tibetan dances with sleeves, though, are it's, it's like these like like windmill movements. I don't know. <laughs> the dancer sort of does one at about like one minute twenty seconds, as well as movements where you like move one sleeve to the other side of your body, and like then the other one follows. Besides like windmill movements, there's also like one where like you kind of like move like one sleeve to the other side of your body, and then the other one follows. And like, I don't know how to describe that particularly well, but the dancer does that at about like one minute 25-ish. Honestly, that entire little section from about like one and a half minutes until about one and a half minutes, it's just like a series of movements that are super iconic of Tibetan dances. And actually the entire like 10 second section from like 120 to 130 
while the dancer's moving around. She's like actually like, you know, she's also like bouncing, like but that's that's the knee bounce. Ooh, another iconic movement or pose sort of is when you put one of your hands in front of your face and the other arms like straight up and the dancer does that at one minute, 51 seconds. Usually I'd say you would do this in turns, but it's definitely like a staple movement in Tibetan dances. And then actually like a variation of that is having both hands in front, like the chin mouth area. Usually the sleeves are both bunched up, but not always. And this of course happens at two minutes and 24 seconds ish. I would say it's pretty common of Tibetan dances to have like a super heavy rhythmic percussive section. It, it, I don't know why, but it's more of like a coincidence and kind of like a quirk, I would say. And definitely at least from like a performance perspective, um, like, like in terms of like actually like an actual execution per perspective, definitely like Tibetan dances are definitely like, a, it's a practice on how to like properly allocate stamina during the first parts of the dance to still have the enough stamina during like the energetic the energetic percussive parts. I mean these dances are like five to six minutes long at their full full length. And usually once you hit like middle school, high school level, like you're doing the full length dance unless it's like maybe like closer to the six or seven minute mark. I don't know. All dances when you as you practice, you you like your stamina adjusts to, to that to that to to the length of that dance but it's almost diff it's like at least in my experience for the other styles it's like fairly constant stamina usage but for like tibetan dances it's it's just a little bit it's a, the way that i've had to allocate stamina it's been a little bit different so Within Tibetan dances, there are dances with and without sleeves, and that's like the main difference. Now, within the sleeveless Tibetan dances, um, there are Tibetan dances that are very similar in movement to the sleeved Tibetan uh, dances, if that makes sense. Like, <sighs> according to the movements, like they could be sleeved dances, and then, and most of the choreography would stay the same. And then there are sleeve dances that aren't that way. But for the sake of variety, this next dance that I'm showing you is, it's a Tibetan dance that is sleeveless, but it the movements, if it were changed into a sleeve Tibetan dance, the choreography would be, would be very different. I've linked a dance called Tianyu, which is it's a dance I've done a couple of times now. And it's a more moderate interpretation of a, of a Tibetan dance. Um, if you know Tibetan, like if you know Tibetan dances, these costumes, they look more modern and they're actually a little bit more lightweight and like less layered. I don't know, it's just more modern. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> okay, so the English names for these Chinese dances have tended to be not extremely literal, like they take the more poetic meaning of it. So for this one, for Tianyu, it'll be like heavenly shower or like bath in heaven, okay? Some variation of that, right? <laughs> But the characters literally mean like day bath or like 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 sky sky bath, you know? <laughs> so I've always jokingly called it day bath because like, you know, the vents are on the plateau cl close in elevation to the sky and they're bathing. Day bath. <laughs> sky bath. <laughs> 
But I would say that Tibetan dances, you know, they're pretty iconic for having some sort of like back movement. Like, like you're usually on your knees, like, and and then almost like like you're usually on your knees and almost in like a full back bend, or like you're trying to get up from like a lying down position. Like, uh, then you're like leading with your chest, like to get up, and that requires, you know, that clearly requires like both back flexibility and strength. This sort of like this type of movement is more featured more okay the type of movement the the more traditional version of it is featured in the next dance i'm talking about so i'll should note it there when we're talking when we're talking about the next dance but this dance has a modern take on like that that back flexibility element firstly at one minute 32 seconds for like the non-soloist dancers and then the whole section from one minute, 36 seconds to like almost two minutes. <laughs> it's just like this back thing. Um, fun facts, Ash, like the, the section from like one minute, 36 uh, seconds to like two minutes. It actually works out your thighs a lot more than you, you think it would. <laughs> but let's talk about this dances, like motifs, if you will. There's going to be like their slow walk that they that the soloist does at the beginning of the dance. That's 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 one that's one. Uh, they actually do it. Everyone does it at about like two minutes eight seconds. Uh, then there are these like movements where they're kind of doing like the scoop, like they're scooping water and pouring it on themselves because bath day bath. There's also another movement later in the dance where it has the dancers sort of like. No, touching their faces, like bathing, just bathing movements. Honestly, a lot of the motif movements are like bathing movements as, as one would expect from a dance called day bath. I would say the most iconic part of this dance are it's, it's either the section at like two minutes and 53 seconds where the, the dancers are in the cube, like that one's pretty iconic, or it's the part when in the middle section, when the music gets into like the, the 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 meat of the music, music if you will, I don't know, like 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 more bassy sounds come in, and I would say that part's fairly iconic until like dancers get into the two lines. Like those are more, like I like, kind of like most iconic, like kind of like not iconic, but like ugh, like the heavy hitter parts of, parts of the dance, I would say. But at three minutes. 42 seconds specifically, the dancers uh, in the diagonal line uh, in the back are again alluding to more like traditional Tibetan dances, like leaning back, chest to the sky, sort of bouncing. There you go. <laughs> There's some more traditional Tibetan dance movement. <laughs> One thing that's like, I think that's pretty unique about this dance in regards to being a Tibetan dance is actually at four minutes and 20 seconds and this is actually one of the reasons why the costumes have to be like a lot lighter so this is the part where the dancers are are there in two lines and the front part the front parts of those two lines and the back parts of those two lines they break into two separate groups and like the front half of the line they do this like butt roll uh into the into left splits left front left front splits and that is super uncommon of tibetan dances and, you know, when they get up, they do this movement uh, that they use to back up into, like, their corner cube that's more traditional. And that's, like, you know, chest to the sky, day bath. 
but this is what I mean by like it's a more modern interpretation of a Tibetan dance. Uh, there's also like my favorite my favorite part of the dance though is actually the section where they're again in like two lines at four minutes forty three seconds. Um, there's nothing particularly like Tibetan dance about this section, I would say. Like in just strictly in terms of movements, it's more like bathing energy. But it's I love that it's like meant to like represent how it's like like the dancers who are standing are like looking into like the river that they're bathing in, I would assume. And the pe the people like on like the front line, like on kneeling are their reflections. Like it's 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 I don't know, it's it's so clever. I love it. I love it. <sighs> okay, whatever. Moving on to another sleeveless uh style of dance. Uh they're these like drum dances. I don't know, these are pretty rare. <laughs> I've only I've only seen one done, and that was the one that I did. <laughs> My friend saw a group Tibetan drum dance, and she sent me a video, like over Snapchat, back when I was using Snapchat in high school. And she was kind of like, "Hey, look, it's 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 the dance. It's a style that you did. LOL." It was like one of those moments. So I, I saw part of that dance. Does that counts for anything? <laughs> so the one that I've linked is called Tian Di Tian, or like Between Heaven and Earth. Again, the sky imagery. <laughs> Doing those drum swings like that were like super smooth. It was it was extremely difficult. Also, just trying to figure it figure it out. Difficult. <laughs> Maybe I just wasn't coordinated enough. I don't know. I had a really hard time pulling that off. <laughs> I would say particularly at around two minute twenty five seconds. I'm guessing that these movements where you start swinging the drum around and sort of like, like sort of like around like your body like are particularly iconic of Tibetan drum dances. Like from what I remember of like the snippet that my friends sent, like they were doing that. <laughs> but the back movements I was talking about, like when I was talking about day bath, like a more classic, a more classic one, it occurs at two minutes, 30 seconds. I mean, like the roll out of the back bend, it's, it's not super traditional. Uh, it's fun to do, fun to do though. <laughs> Uh, but the section after, like, after you kind of roll out of, like, the back bend during the slow part, that's where the more traditional Tibetan movements come out in this dance. I just wanted to point out that, like, over the years, I've watched this dance, like, a lot. But, like, while I was watching this dance back for this, for this, uh, this podcast episode, I realized that the dancer actually, like, she actually messes up and accidentally, like, throws her drum across the stage. I've watched this dance countless times since 2017, and I am only noticing this now in like December of 2023. Maybe that's a testament to the professionalism of this dancer. Maybe that's a testament of how much I was paying attention. But it, that's kind of like an aside. The movement where she like rolls her, the drum down from her hands, like down her like arm, when I was doing this dance, I, was, I remember being so nervous for, for this, this part just because the drum I was using in practice was so heavy and I was afraid it was going to like hit me in the face or I was going to like throw it across the stage. Maybe maybe I should have been paying attention to the video closer when I was wa actually doing this dance just, just that I knew that, you know, stuff like that happens, you know, and there's a, as long as it looks like you know what you're doing, it, it, no, one, no one really knows. But I would say that that drum 
roll down the arm. It's like pretty iconic of this dance. And then at five minutes, 13 seconds, we actually have like a in place repeated fenchen with a drum. I don't remember what the name of that fenchen is called, but you know, there it is. Um, following that, there's this movement where the dancer sort of like glides backwards. And from what I remember of like the other dance, the snippet that I saw that my, that my friend sent me, like it's a fairly common movement in like Tibetan drum dances. <laughs> then for the last sort of uh, type of dance, I hesitate to call it type of dance because it's more it's just one dance that's, co that's covered a lot. But there are some other da dances that are similar, but there's it's primarily one. And those are the dances that for some reason use like cowboy hats instead of the traditional headpiece. This was one of the things that I was desperately researching <laughs> in preparation for this episode. And I literally could not find like, okay, given that I only had a certain amount of time to, to prepare for this episode, right? I could not find why the cowboy hat i wish i could i wish i did but i could not find any english resource on why the cowboy hat if someone if i do eventually find why the cowboy hat when i have more time i will i will be sure to inform if somebody knows why the cowboy hat please tell me i really want to know <laughs> so the dance I've linked. It's super common. It's called Kanjing Chingo. And honestly, I don't have a lot to say about this dance, but it's around a lot in Chinese dance. I think Tian Lu and Tian Di Dian are very like, emotional dances. And, you know, like they're soulful and it's very common of Tibetan dances. And then Day Bath, it's not like an emotional dance, but it's not super lighthearted and fun dance either. Like one thing that's immediately clear in the first minute of Kanjing Chingo is like, it's super lighthearted and fun. I would even go as far as to say. Also like, you know, the movements are you know, pretty different from the other Tibetan dances, but you know, there's still that chest to the sky bouncing and like shifting backwards movement at like two minute, 30 seconds. And then there's also actually, and then this is actually a fun fact. Um, at 2 minutes 41 seconds, there's that percussive section that's actually the same as in Tianlu. So that's fun. But um, after all the hat shenanigans, uh, when the music picks back up after the slow part at five and a half minutes, there is there's that more traditional Tibetan movement with like the chest to the sky and like shifting the weight uh, back and forth. But you know, no traveling this time. And one thing that you'll notice in this dance that in that's similar with Tianlu is that the dancers are like, you know, very quick on their feet. And I would say that's pretty common of like Tibetan dances specifically. I mean, of course, it's uh, it's important to have like quick feet in all aspects of Chinese dance, but it's especially true in Tibetan, I want to say, or at least I've noticed it more like quick footwork in Tibetan dances while I'm doing them. Maybe it's just because like when you're looking at it, it doesn't look like you have to have like quick feet because uh, the skirt like, obscures like what you're doing with your feet I don't know I guess now's a good time to talk about hands <laughs> I feel like 
how the hands are held, they're much more loose than Tibetan style, than the other styles that we talked about under the traditional umbrella. And I've talked about this before, like last episode, I think, or maybe it was earlier this episode, but Lianghua Shou are, it's, like, technically you're not supposed to, to, to do that in Tibetan. It's supposed to be, like, just, like, open, open hands, I guess. But I guess you'll notice, you'll notice it a little bit more in recreational dances that, like, dancers will do Lianghua Shou, and you can get away with it. And this might go more into, like, psychology, but I feel like this happens more with Tibetan dances than it does, like, Mongolian dances because of how much, like, acting that tends to go into Tibetan dances more so than Mongolian dancers. So maybe this is, I don't know. And at least, like, for a lot of younger dancers, it's hard to get the right emotional execution so at the recreational level, I've definitely been, and I've definitely been guilty of doing this. There are lots of Tibetan dances that aren't technically reaching that like emotional execution, but it's like, you know, good enough for a, a young recreational dancer. But since you're not really hitting like the emotional execution, doing some of these movements, particularly in dances, they're more like Tianlu or Tiandijian. It's, it's, it could be a little bit, for the dancer, it could feel a little bit awkward, right? So to make you, I guess like, I'm so I'm guessing to kind of like make yourself feel a little bit less awkward, like young dancers would use like long hua shou as a kind of like a coping mechanism maybe, to sort of like make it like feel like less awkward. Because at least, I don't know, that's just, that's just my best guess. We will end with Dai dances. <laughs> so the Dai people are located on the southwest border of China. And that area is like, it's like subtropical zone. Um, I would say that Dai has, like, three main distinct styles, if you will. Like, the common style, the hat dances, and peacock dances. All three of these, like, they, they, share some sort of, they share some sort of commonalities. Namely, in, like, how the hands are usually shaped or, like, costuming. And kind of, like, general approach that you have to take to the movements. But, I don't know, they're also fairly distinct as well. So firstly, like the common style, which is, again, it's my label for it. So this is everything that's not the hat dances or the peacock dances, which I know that sounds super specific. Usually these dances feature the most like, common, like iconic dime movements. So there's like this one walk that's meant to like represent like walking in the water. So like with each step, the weight goes on to onto the standing foot and then the hip follows like the same foot so like if the left foot steps forward the weight's on the left and the hip jumps to the left right and um the other foot is flexed and like popped in the air behind right um and then when you walk forward like your hip is supposed to like make this like wide swing to the other side so basically your butt is making a very large u usually one of the hands is like tracking the movements of one of the feet so if you're like doing the walk and one hand's like swinging in tune and like in sync, I guess, with the opposite foot. So if there, it's the right hand, it's swinging the same direction as the left foot. Also, there are a lot of just like more body rolls, I would say. So it's like, there's also like, I don't know, like there's like, so take that same walk. Um, but now instead of moving forwards, you're moving sideways. And when you take each step, your body sort of, sort of like rolls in the same direction that you're stepping. 
like you're stepping to the left so your body moves to the left and then when your feet come together the body like it's like meant to lean to the right but you can't do that in like a rolling motion right usually there's like the, just motion that goes with your hand so like when you're stepping apart your thumbs are like pointing out in that direction and as you're walking and you know your thumbs are like up but you know it's like your, your hands are in a thumbs up position but like they're like angled sideways and then like you step together they're supposed to fall back in, uh with the body in like the classic die hands so let's talk about what that means um hands are either again the thumbs up position in some different orientation or they're classic die hands and die hands are when you're like like pointer and your like all your fingers from like your pointer to your pinky are like straight and then you push your thumb like forward so it makes like like a so your hands should be making like a check mark. <laughs> I don't know. So like ideally you want like, you know, flexible like fingers on this. But I think there's there's also this like less common variation where if you take like, you know, your classic die hands and you curl your pointer down so it kind of looks like a bird talon. Yeah. Another fun fact of die style is that it's almost always done barefoot. Some of the earlier entries on this list, um, you're also supposed to do barefoot, but like the die style was actually my first exposure to doing like dances barefoot or like why are supposed to be barefoot. Um, die dances do require a particular, particularly require a lot of shoulder and back flexibility, like more so than the other styles I would say. Uh, every movement requires like an arched back and it's like meant to like be accentuated by like your like flexible shoulders. So I don't know if I said this yet, but thigh dances can be like a little bit uncomfortable when like young kids do it. And I want to say that's not just because of costuming. Um, a lot of the movements can... Okay, so a lot of the movements through a modern lens can be, like, considered sensual, to say the least. I don't like putting Chinese dance through, these, through this kind of modern lens, okay? I don't like it. Um, because in my mind, I just they just inherently cannot coexist. But what one could argue that there is this, like, sensual, sexy element uh, to dye dances when looking through them with a modern lens. There's like a lot of like chest popping in and out and like hip and butt movements and like, like it's not like dirty or suggestive. I'm just, I'm just saying that like, it could be called sexy or even elegant twerking as I've described some of the movements in my personal life. Um, you know what, you know what? Let me, let's, let's just talk about the, the, the examples because that's like the best way the, to let's talk about examples so I can stop digging myself into a hole <laughs> the first dance I provide is called qi shui or like happy water um there's nothing in particular about this dance that's like super like classical die style about like uh one minute 45 uh seconds that's when the dancer's like flattened into a straight line 
And there are these some extremely common silhouettes and movements, like the pose that they hit after they turn. Super classical die dances. And then that walk we were talking about earlier pops up at about like 1 minute 57 seconds. So there's a, there's a fun little story with this one. <laughs> the music from 2 minutes and 44 seconds to the end, it's actually pulled from a classical dance that I've done. And I've also done She's Right before. So I would say there's a very, very instance of a piece of music or like a part of like a part of a piece of music being reinterpreted in very different dance styles in like within Chinese dance. Like I wanna say that at least for like the common style, there's a trend that's more that's like more prevalent in Dai dances than like in other parts of Chinese dance. But like no, it's there maybe we'll talk about it one day. And that's like how the music, you know, changes. The music change generally goes from something like slow to sometimes sometimes with singing like ooze or whatever, um, to some sort of like fast semi-finale, like uh, to like usually a third section that's more of like a that's more intense than like the last section, or it's some sort of like callback to the slower section. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but that's the be- that's the best I can do without um, specifics. But back to Shisui, at four minutes. Six seconds ish, there's like another music change, and um, this is what I mean by like elegant twerking. <laughs> Honestly, this one you just kind of gotta watch the video to get it. <laughs> there is a taste of it for about like six seconds, but like the elegant twerky doesn't start in earnest until about like four minutes, 12 seconds. And I get it, I get it, it's meant to emphasize like back and shoulder flexibility, but I stand by what I said. But this section until about like the spinning section and then also the section where like singing are like the two most fun sections of this dance to do though, low key. <laughs> so in part because of the flared skirt, I would say die dances usually end with some sort of grand finale of a series of spins. like. It's characteristic of uh, like it's characteristic of die dance like so I want to kind of compare it with wushu that's like the best exi- uh, best comparison that I have even though it's not particularly helpful I suppose um, but the way I see it in the same way that you that in like a wushu form you end it with a more difficult stance like an empty stance you end a die dance with a difficult turning section and. I mean, at least that's how I took it. <laughs> I, I, that's how I've always took it. You end with an empty stance to prove, or a difficult empty stance or a, di- a general like difficult like stance to do to prove that your legs, you know, like that you're still going strong and that you could do more in theory despite the amount of like energy that you just like exerted in wushu, right? So in die dances, you end with a spinning section, not only to prove your competency in that technique, but also to prove just like how stable you are after, like during the slow section or straight into the pose or whatever. I don't know. It's just for those of y'all who have done die dances, maybe maybe you haven't thought about that before. Maybe I just think about too much about this. <laughs> but in Shish- but Shishue is an older older die dance, I would say. A more modern die dance is which is like. I think that the literal translation is something like die girls in the die rain, but it's, it usually translates to like die girls, something like that. I would say this dance is kind of a newer dance more, and kind of popular in like 2017-ish, 
Um, it's an umbrella dance, uh, but a lot of the movements you could see are are like still like classical dive dance styles, right? The opening starts with those like hip arm movements from like the soloist, which are pre it's pretty iconic of that dance, right? At two minutes, 25 seconds, the dancers get into a line and do this, do like that sideways walk that I was talking about earlier. Those little hops that they do in the line at like two and a half minutes are like also just super iconic of Dai. The music change at about three minutes, 36 seconds is also very iconic Dai fast section combo. Also features more of that elegant twerking energy. And of course, this Dai dance ends with like, you know, long spinning section as well. But I actually have a fun story uh, with this dance, but I will save it for another time because I did this dance uh, a lot in different times. <laughs> like I've done this dance like two or three times and, and then now I'm, depending on how you count it, maybe this fourth time I don't know. This dance is ingrained into my memory is all I can say. I could do this dance like in my sleep. Like, let's just say, let's just say that a handful of months ago, my dance teacher asked me if I knew this, knew this dance. And then when I said yes, she was like, prove it. And then she played the music. And then I did prove it. I, I did the dance. <laughs> maybe, this will, maybe this will go in the episode where I, I talk about dances that I will never forget for one re reason or another. <laughs> But let's move on and talk about like the hat dances. And these aren't like rice patty hats that people think about when someone says like Chinese hat or whatever, okay? It's not, it's not the triangle ones. <laughs> these tend to be like mostly, these, these hats, they tend to be mostly flat. Um, there's kind of like a triangle like at the top if you're like looking at it from like straight on. But it's not, it's not, it's not a rice patty hat, guys. Um, sometimes they're like tassels, like hanging down on it and usually there's not it's just sometimes um the hat um in the practice of Chinese dance are usually like tilted at an angle so that the, uh, if the dancer is like looking down the hat completely completely obscures like the rest of the head and like the face and like the full disc of the hat is very visible um costumes are also very different from like classical dye dance uh, costumes the costumes just tend to be a little bit like less revealing for like these these the die hat dances. I also want to say that like the, the these hat dances usually the costumes usually come in like darker colors like 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 black and red like deep yellows sometimes blue, and like I don't know, and the movements are also like pretty different. Like the classic style of die that you saw. That we, that we were previously talking about, you know, it's very elegant and feminine. I want to say that like hat dances tend to swing away from the more obviously elegant movements. There are these movements that emphasize the hip. Like there's this one um, hat solo, like this one die hat solo that my friend did when we were all uh, fourth years in high school. And we teased her for this little like middle section where she literally stood there and the starting movement, which was like really slow, was like this hip swivel. And so like it's there, but I want to say more so than in like other die dances, like the more classic die style, that like hat that that die hat dances are like they have like sharper movements and they tend to be like I would almost say like powerful. <laughs> I don't know. So the dance I featured is called Hua Yao Hua. It's it's 
the dance starts with like you know the dancers on stage like looking down so you really can't see their face but like from the outset you can even just see how like the movements are going to be are like still like sort of the same like they're they're similar right like they still have the same similar hip movements but it's not like emphasized in the way as like, in the more classical classic die style right and when the music beat starts to kick in it becomes pretty clear how this dance is in some ways like different like with those sharper movements particularly in that traveling group and then when the third group comes in you can see that the walk that we were talking about earlier like it's there, there's still a resemblance there right but it's like it's sped up and like not meant to emphasize like the shape of the female body in the same way that, as it is, in the same way as the more common dice style but when like all the groups when all those three groups come together like into that cube we can like see that you know, there's still like elegance in those slower movements and how they still like use like their hip to accentuate movements and stuff and whatever. I actually have a lot to say about this dance as well, but um <laughs> but I have done this dance before. I was actually in the second group that enters the stage, like the traveling group, the second traveling group. Or get the technically the first traveling group, but it's like the second group that you see like when you're watching the video. And I remember this because everyone said that that was like the hard group like in terms of movements and I literally could not remember for the life of me the easier like like everyone said like the movements and like that and the, the section of like the, of the group that's like first on stage everyone says that's like the easy that's the easy group I could not remember that those movements for the life of me <laughs> okay we're almost done I promise finale let's talk peacock dances to the Dai ethnic group, peacocks are like a symbol of auspiciousness and beauty. And therefore, the peacock dances are meant to reflect their respect for peace, honesty, and beauty. And apparently, there's this little legend that goes with it. Uh, supposedly, one day, a long time ago, the father figure of the Dai people saw a peacock, a peacock like, you know, dance gracefully in the wild. And it was only natural that he would want to imitate it. Therefore, from that day on, the peacock dance. <laughs> peacock dances are like really, really, re they're really hard. Besides the obvious imagery and the costuming to like peacocks, the dance being, it's going to be named something like having to do with peacocks. So it's going to be easy to spot one of these. But in terms of like the actual dance, the hand positioning for like, a peacock dance is different. It's called the peacock hand for obvious reasons. So basically you put your thumb and index finger like touching and then your index finger can like flex up and down to give like your peacock hand a little bit more character throughout like the dance. And the other fingers are meant to like spread out like, like a fan, like a fan shape, whatever, right? And uh, a little fun fact is that apparently this, the peacock has like a blinky movement. I don't know. And like a general like iconic movement of like a peacock dance and uh, includes balancing on one foot, kicking the other foot back towards the hip um, with a bent leg. So like the this other leg is meant to be like low, low and bent. It's not like a like an arabesque, okay? And the body is like you know is then like twisted to the front, and the arms are meant to like be stretched out with like a very slight bend, like a bird's wing. The description is awful, I, I know, but if you know what I'm talking about, it's like the only way you can describe it. <laughs> But overall, these dances have like lots of movements that are intended to imitate 
like a peacock or a bird in some some way. The most iconic is like the wing flap. <laughs> Sounds so stupid. Which is basically like it's basically like a broken down arm wave, like a severely broken down arm wave. Like I'll talk about the one that I've linked in more detail later. But it's um probably the one that I've linked is like the most iconic peacock dance, I would say. It's one of the most done peacock dances. I don't know. But like there's this a variation where the emphasis is like on the dancer's silhouette. So it looks like the shadow of a peacock dancing in the moonlight. And then there's also this one peacock duet that features both like a male and female dancer. I haven't watched that one all the way be uh, before, but it pops up on my suggested often. So I don't know. I've linked to these in the description. Uh, check it out if you want, but I'm not going to be talking about these in detail this episode. There's also one called Jade Peacock, which features more of like a traditional take of a peacock on a peacock dance, like traditional in the sense that like the costuming and some of the movements are more like the traditional a common die style. I've linked this one as well. Just beware of the awful quality. The main one that I'm talking about, the really famous one that I'm talking about, is called Che Ling, or like Spirit of the Peacock. So this dance is unique in the costuming to start. So it's this white multi-layered dress with a peacock pattern on the top layer. And the start of the dance is all just peacock hand movements. It's actually kind of insane how much control this, this part takes. And about three minutes, three seconds in, there's that iconic or there's that iconic pose that was very poorly describing earlier. She also does the the that arm flapping, arm fluttering, which is like super clean, super sharp even. I think Chinese dance takes a lot of bodily control. Um, in the same way that ballet requires a lot of bodily control. Um, this though, it takes even more body like control. Like this peacock dance is like, it's very common, but it's the magnum opus of like, of, of Chinese dance. The amount of control that each movement requires is very difficult, completely insane. Because not only do like these arm flaps have to be distinct in each minuscule movement, but they also have to be like elegant, you know? For those of you who don't know, like a sharp and elegant, sharp and elegant movements do not mix particularly well, okay? Or they don't mix particularly easy, let me say. But that's what these, these arm flaps require. Okay, guys, we did it. <laughs> we finished. That was the last style that I wanted to talk about. <sighs> I could feel my voice get more tired as I record continue to record so I'm wondering how how tired I come across as sounding in when I listen back to it <laughs> uh, but you know what? it's okay it's been a long journey but we're done now guys we're done um we did it our our overview of Chinese dance is technically over honestly it's kind of crazy this is all originally supposed to be one episode but you know Clearly, it's expanded into more than one episode. <laughs> but, you know, I loved sharing this information with you and doing this deep dive. Obviously, I've had a lot more experience these past three than, like, the styles that we talked about last episode. 
but I'm so glad I was able to share this with everyone. I, I know I've, I've been doing Chinese dance for a long time, so I've, I've accrued like a lot of like information just like by, by passive intake, passive learning. So it's been nice to kind of like share this knowledge also, like not just my experience, but like knowledge, like more fact-based knowledge so than like anecdotal stuff as well. Because like I know like at least specifically within dye dance, like I know there are some people who like didn't know that that peacock dances were technically dye dances, and I can guarantee that some people who have done Chinese dance don't didn't know that like uh like the cowboy hat dance were like Tibetan dances. So I guess all of you, whether you know Chinese dance or not, maybe you've learned something. But you know what? This episode is long enough, so let me say thank you so much for joining me, and I hope that this was at the very least entertaining while you were doing something else. Like, that was good background. <laughs> that was good background noise. <laughs> um, maybe you learned something. Hopefully you learned something. Um, if I'm lucky, you found at least one dance style that you want to try or even a dance that you generally like for one reason or another across these three episodes. I hope to see you next episode. I can, I, I promise it won't be as long. <laughs> Thanks for listening. 